Welcome to Christ Church Anglican. We hope that you were blessed by today's sermon. So Philippians chapter 2, starting at the third verse. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death, on a cross. This is uh, a passage that was read at our wedding and when Aaron and I got married, and it has helped to steer our marriage since then. <laughs> um, the idea of being a servant and not looking to your own interests, but to the interests of others. And Jesus gives us the best example of this through his own life, death, on the cross for us, his resurrection, and his ascension. He's exalted through his own humility. And in the Christian life, we're going to talk about that this morning, how we are actually exalted, we're actually lifted up, the more we humble ourselves, the more we become servants. Uh, God lifts us up and exalts us. And so let's turn to Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9, verses 30 through 37. And you can find it on page 844. 845 in your Bibles, in your pew Bibles. So they went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know. So verse 30 shows us at the end of Jesus' life, he knows that the cross is coming. He knows that there's not much time left with his disciples. And so he sacrifices extensive teaching for intensive teaching. So instead of teaching thousands and thousands of people, he's teaching his 12. And his last days, instead of really focusing on a, you know, a huge group of people, he focuses on the 12. Most of us would be overwhelmed to the point of nervous breakdowns if we were in Jesus' situation. I mean, he knows he's going to die. He's on the way to the cross, and he has all of this stress on him, all of this weight on him to take on the sin of the whole world. But he simply, simply focuses on what is most important to him at that moment. And Jesus calls us to overcome the fevered rush in our world and our many ministries, and to be purposefully selective. So you can do a lot of ministries, right? You can do all kinds of things in this world. God gives you however many days you have. Um, Bill was talking about that this morning in our, our study. Nobody's guaranteed tomorrow, right? So each of us have a certain amount of time on this earth. And so it's important for us to use that time well. Jesus knows that he doesn't have much time left at all. He actually knows when he's going to die. Most of us don't have that, but he does. And so he's taking these last moments to pour into his disciples, to prepare them for his death, for his, his crucifixion, for his resurrection, for his ascension, and for the coming of the Holy Spirit, for when they will be filled with the Holy Spirit for their ministries. So what is most important at this moment? This is a question we have to ask ourselves in this life. It's like I said, we're not guaranteed tomorrow. So what are we going to do with this day don't put it off till tomorrow. Don't put it off till next month or next year. What are you doing today for God's kingdom with the little time that you have on this earth? Verse 31. 
For he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. This is commonly called the second passion prediction. So Jesus predicts his his death three times in the book of Mark. He predicts it once in chapter 8. He he predicts his death again in chapter 9. And then he actually uh, predicts his death again in chapter 10. The first time, as we all remember, Peter says, you know, he starts to rebuke Jesus. He says, you can't say that. Don't say that, right? And then Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. You know, a lot of us have heard that verse, right? And then this is the second one that comes. And then there's the third one uh, later where he predicts his death. And it's interesting in that in the first one, Peter rebukes him. In the second one, the, Jesus, the disciples start to bicker about who's the greatest. And then the third one, James and John come up to him and ask, you know, can we be, you know, at your, your, hand, your left and your right hand in the kingdom? And so it's interesting the way they react in these, uh, these passion predictions, in these, when he's telling them that he's going to die, and this is how they react. They, they either rebuke him, tell him he's not going to die, <laughs> or if you are going to die, give us a, a good place of authority so that we can take over when you're gone, kind of thing. So the disciples, uh, they fail to understand that it is God's will to deliver Jesus into the hands of men. And this is so important. In the New King James and the, and the King James Version, those are great translations, right? They're very literal. But it's actually better delivered into the hands of men. Uh, the New King James, King James says, betrayed into the hands of men. But we're not talking about Judas betraying Jesus here. We're actually talking about God delivering uh, Jesus into the hands of sinners so that these men will kill him and that sin will be atoned for. And so it's actually God's will to crush him, as it says in Isaiah 53. So from the very beginning, God was planning this to deliver his son. He gave his only begotten son that we should be saved, right? Anyone that believes in him will be saved. And so we all need this Savior. And Jesus is delivered by the Father into the hands of men. It's God's plan. So Peter is understandably, uh, it is understandable why Peter, James, and John especially are so confused at this. Because if we look just before in chapter 9, the transfiguration takes place. It reads, chapter 9 of Mark, And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here will, will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Now some people think that this verse is talking about the second coming of Jesus. But in reality, what happens in the very next verse? And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up to the high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intense, intensely white, as, one, uh, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to, uh, to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And so here we see that they get a picture of Jesus transfigured before them. And so this coming of the kingdom, you're al- they're already seeing the kingdom coming, just in the next verse. So we're not necessarily talking about the second coming. Jesus is already showing the kingdom right here in this verse. But it's not like Jesus is being transformed here. The veil is actually being lifted from their eyes so they can say Jesus for who he truly is, the Son of Man. And for that, we need to go back to Daniel chapter 9. So if you have your your Bibles with you, turn to Daniel chapter 9, or sorry, Daniel chapter 7, which is on page 744. 
I'm going to skip over to verses 13 through 14 on page 745. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and and a kingdom that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. And so Daniel 7 is critical for us to understand the term son of man. Son of man is used in the Old Testament, and often we think about I am statements, right? The I am statements of Jesus saying, I am the bread of life, and, and how offensive that was because I am comes from the Old Testament as well, when God calls himself the great I am. When Moses says, who, who should I say sends me? He says, I am sends you. And so Jesus says I am a lot, but he also calls himself the son of man. So he's using these Old Testament titles, which is very offensive to the Jewish people, because what he's doing here is he's pointing to the fact that he is God. That he's not just a prophet, he's not just a good teacher, but Jesus himself is God. And so when he, he says that he is the Son of Man, uh, they're, they're looking back at his, his, his transfiguration, and then they remember Daniel chapter 7, what they had heard growing up in, in, at home or in synagogue, that this Son of Man should be radiant. He should be, you know, all this light flowing from him, right? So we see that he is the Son of Man that they would expect. But suddenly, as we see in verse 32, or verse 31, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. And so that's in our reading today. But he also says, right after the transfiguration, uh, he says, Elijah does come first to restore all things, and how it is written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt. And so he just got transfigured. He just was revealed to be the Son of Man of the Old Testament, and now he's saying he's going to have to die. Now, I'm sure it's a bit frustrating when you want to start a revolution and your leader keeps saying he has to die first. <laughs> I mean, if I was following somebody and they said, well, I'm going to have to die before you, we can actually, I can actually start my kingdom, before I can actually establish my kingdom, I have to die first. It's a little disheartening, right? So it's kind of understandable that Peter would say, no, like, you're not going to die. He like, starts to rebuke him. And it's also understandable why the disciples would start to panic, because now their leader, instead of being the strong leader that they expected in the bee, is like, well, I'm going to have to die first, guys. I'm sorry, but I'm going to have to, you know, be crucified. And, you know, and, and so they're starting to panic, which is understandable. Verses 33 through 34, And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them. So I'm going to stop there. In the house is, is literally probably Peter's house. So Peter had his mother-in-law that he lived with, which I'm sure was a lot of fun. And he had his wife, right? And so uh, Jesus stayed with, his, with Peter's mother-in-law and his wife, most likely in Capernaum. So this was headquarters for the disciples. And he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? And I'm going to stop there as well, because when people would travel, when the disciples would walk on the way, they would probably be walking on like a one-track one path, kind of like a, a, a deer trail, you might say, where it's really just enough room for one person to walk along. And here in West Texas, we understand that you don't walk on the side because you get sticker burrs, right? And you don't want to get stickers in your feet or in your pants or all over you. So you stay on the path. 
And so the disciples would have stayed on the path as well. So you can just imagine Jesus is walking in front of them, and the whole time he can hear behind him them bickering about who is the greatest, going up and down, up and down, back and forth. And they're, they're bickering about, I want to be, you know, seated next to him in his, in, when he comes in, in his kingdom. I want to be there, just like James and John do. And so he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent. For on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. So they're embarrassed at this point. In verse 35, and he, and he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. So he sits down just like in the traditional rabbi posture of a teacher. He sits down, and then the disciples would gather around him and sit at his feet, just like Martha, remember Martha, or Mary, like Mary did when Martha was busy around the house trying to get everything ready and trying to get things perfect for, for Jesus. Mary chooses the best thing, which is to sit at his feet. And so that's what he's doing here. He's sitting down, and all the disciples would gather around and stop what they're doing. They put away their phones. You know, they would, you know, stop doing stuff, stop thinking about lunch, you know, all the things that we're prone to do in this world today. And they would focus on what he has to say, because the rabbi has something to say. If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. So pride and self-exaltation is so natural for our sinful nature. But Jesus calls his disciples to respond to his death, not through self or group exaltation, but through humility and service. And so when our leaders are saying things that are confusing, or when we aren't quite sure what's going to happen, and I know that's happening in our society today. There's a lot of people who are wondering what leadership is doing, right? What's happening in Washington, D.C.? What's happening amongst our leadership? It's easy for us to kind of go inside, right? To kind of protect ourselves, to go in self-preservation mode. Um, and sometimes it can even lead to infighting and backbiting and gossiping and trying to you know, get in front of everyone else or to put yourself into a position where you can be in control because things feel out of control. And so you see the disciples doing that here is they're, they're jockeying for position so that they can be in control. They can be in the lead. I'm not going to read from this, the Gospel of Mark, um, by uh, J.C. Ryle. This is his, his thoughts on the Gospel. But he talks about how in our world today, it's so easy for people to think about being in leadership by crowns and by rank and by political power and by authority. But that's not the way the kingdom of heaven comes. We see it in the next verses. Verse 36 says, And he took a child and put him in the middle, or the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, and I'm going to pause right there. So taking him in his arms in the Greek is literally to cradle, to put him in the, in the, like the, you know, the curve of his arm. So this isn't a small child. This isn't like me taking my, my son Silas or Aiden and sitting him on my lap. This child is an infant, vulnerable, can't do anything, can't ask for anything. He, he probably just, you know, cries and eats like most infants do, right? And so Jesus takes them in his arms, and Jesus says that their status in the kingdom does not come from exalting themselves and fighting for position, but serving the very least and receiving them as they would receive Jesus. And so this child, which would have been the most uh, vulnerable person in society, this child, I mean, back then a dad could literally take his child and set him out to be exposed in nature and die. 
uh, a dad could take a child if he was deformed or if he had mental disabilities or something, and you could, they could tell early on, they would take that child and they could have the child either put out to die or literally kill them themselves. And so children were the most vulnerable child, children. Like, they were so vulnerable in the ancient world. Vulnerable today, right? But even more vulnerable in the ancient world. And so here we see that Jesus is taking this child and saying, this child is my ambassador. When you look at him, you see me. When you look into his eyes, you see my eyes. When you, when you receive him, you receive me. And when you receive me, you don't receive me, but you receive him who sent me. And so you see this thing where God is showing himself through this vulnerable child. And so in our world today, instead of being bickering and fighting about who's in control or who's the greatest, the kingdom of heaven is built on us becoming like children, becoming uh, vulnerable and becoming uh, like children in our faith. But it's also about us welcoming the vulnerable, welcoming the weakest in society. And so, to conclude, um, in our world today, I think there's a lot of distrust of authority figures. And I, even in our church today, in the ACNA, we've had clergy abuses, where clergy have abused their authority. They should be taking care of God's people and shepherding them. But as clergy, the deacon is the foundation of everything we do. Deacon, diakonos, in Greek literally means servant. And Jesus calls us to even be slaves, not just servants, but doulas, slaves, which I know Father Brown loves to talk about, doulas. Uh, so it's so important that we understand that in this kingdom, bishops and priests should be deacons first. And no less, lay people, all of you, the congregation, y'all need to be servants so that people can see Jesus in you, and so that they can see the kingdom come in power, not through political power or authority or something like that, but through becoming a servant, a servant of all. Amen. Thanks for tuning in. For more information, feel free to visit us online at ccanglican.com. We hope you will join us again soon.